Would you open your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 9? I want to spend a few minutes with you today looking at verses 9 through 13 in Matthew chapter 9. I'll read it to you and share a few things introductorily and look into the passage for a few moments. So beginning here in Matthew chapter 9, at verse 9, Matthew writes, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me introduce myself to you, and then I want to move into our study today. We'll look at these few verses. As mentioned, my name is David Rosales. I'm from Cal Cal Calvary Chapel of the Chino Valley in, in uh, California. I'm one of the few who were born in California and raised in California. We have a great influx uh, over the years. Some of you may be from California originally. Some of you are aware. Maybe you have family. Uh, when I grew up in the early uh, 50s, we had about 13 million who were in California, and now the amount is probably close to 45 million. And so it's a very large state and very busy state and all. Uh, my last name, Rosales, is a, a Hispanic name. I'm a Mexican-American. Uh, my grandparents on both sides of the family uh, came into uh, the United States legally um, in the turn of the century, and uh, they... Um, they were basically just good, hardworking people. My mom and dad were first-generation Californians, first-generation Americans. So I was raised as a Hispanic. I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and I did all of my uh, religious upbringing from the baptism and, and penance and communion and confirmation. I performed or received all of those sacraments, but at the same time, I grew up empty at the age of... Uh, of about 15, I began to begin to use uh, alcohol, moved into drugs, and for the next few years, until I was 20 years old, I uh, got pretty heavily involved involved in various drugs, including hallucinogenics and and a lot of uh, pot smoking, a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, and uh, you know that may not seem unusual now, but it was very unusual back at that time. I got arrested three different times for alcohol-related offenses, including the bur burglarization of a jewelry store. My life was going down in a terrible way. But all along, I thought I was a Christian because I'd been baptized, because I had received communion, and because I had received confirmation. So I was pretty sure that I was a Christian. I just wasn't practicing my faith. But my only hope for heaven wasn't that I would somehow be able to achieve it. it. My hope for heaven was to marry a good Catholic woman who would pray my soul out of purgatory. That was probably my basis of hope, that one day maybe I'll go to heaven if I have a good wife who will help me in that endeavor. Well, long story made short, 
When I was 20 years old, I was invited to a church. It was called Calvary Chapel. There was only one. It was in Costa Mesa. A friend of mine kept inviting me. I ended up going. And ultimately, the first time I ever went to Calvary Chapel, I uh, was 20. I was barefooted. I was a hippie, so I had the long hair. I smoked some pot. I drank some beer. And I went to church. I fully expected to be kicked out of the church because had I walked into St. Uh, Pius X's church, my, my church, if I'd have walked in in that condition, I'd have been promptly escorted out. So you can't imagine what it felt like for me to walk in as a hippie, you know, loaded and been drinking. You can't imagine what it felt like for me to walk in and see a lot of people who looked just like me, except they weren't loaded and they hadn't been drinking. And then the speaker, his name was Lonnie Frisbee, to see him come walking out to give the Bible study, and, and he looked freakier than me. So I was really kind of blown away by all of that. I didn't give my heart to Christ that day, but I did hear the gospel. And over the course of a few more months, now it's December of 1970, I'm invited once again to go and hear the gospel. I went to something that was called a Maranatha concert. It was at the Hollywood Palladium in Hollywood, and there were 4,000 people seated on the carpet, and they had a day of concerts, very similar to what you're having here. There was a day of concerts and speakers, and a speaker by the name of Arthur Blessed got up. And Arthur Blessed gave the gospel. And he said, if you need the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, then stand to your feet. And after going through the day and thinking about my life and hearing the message that, that helped me to see myself for what I was, I, I, I remember hearing him say, if you need Christ, stand to your feet. And, uh, and I prayed and I said, God, I know I need you, but I'm shy. I can't stand in front of anybody. But if somebody would stand with me, I would stand. And as God is my witness, no sooner had I thought that prayer out to him than Arthur Blessed said, perhaps you're afraid to stand by yourself, but if somebody would stand with you, would you stand? And so my friend who was seated next to me, his name was George, tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'll stand with you. And I stood for Christ December 27, 1970, and I've been standing for Jesus Christ ever since. God is good. And what I want to share with you a little bit about today is found here in Matthew 9, I want to share a few things with you concerning the good God that we serve. Let me look at this as a Bible study that I would teach in my own fellowship. I'll add a couple of illustrations for you. You haven't heard them, but my, my church wouldn't put up with them. They've heard them before. But I get to share them with you. It says in verse 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So as we begin, people are following a young carpenter turned preacher. His message and his miracles are drawing people to investigate who he just might be. And as people begin to gather, he takes that opportunity to teach them about God. As he's doing so, he's communicating what was given to him by his own father. You see, Jesus in John 7, 16 said, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. So the message that he's giving concentrates especially on God's desire to forgive sinful people. The message of the gospel communicates the love of God, the mercy of God, as well as the compassion that God has on those who are lost. And God sees that people are lost. He sees that they're aimlessly wandering. He knows that we have no direction. He knows that we have no purpose. 
We see that in Scripture when Paul was writing to a church that was located in the ancient city of Ephesus. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul said this very clearly. He said to that church, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So when Paul said to the Ephesians, you he made alive who once walked, that word walked in the original language, the original language of the New Testament is called koine or common Greek. He says, you once walked. That word walked means to meander. It speaks of walking aimlessly with no purpose. You just existed. You just moved on. You just did things, but you had no purpose in your life. He said, you are the ones that he has made alive. You who at one time meandered according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, it is you that he has made alive. And he did that through the gospel and by the power of the spirit. When Jesus spoke, very often he would speak concerning lost sheep. He would speak of lost coins. He would speak of lost sons. Because what was lost needed to be found. He spoke of himself as being a good shepherd. And he made it very clear that it is he who seeks out and saves the one that is lost. He said, I'm not simply a hired hand. I'm a loving shepherd. I'm a shepherd who seeks out and finds my sheep. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to bring sinners into a relationship with God. And the way you can have a relationship with God is not by works of righteousness, which you have done but by us yielding to the fact that he has sought us out and declaring him to be our Savior. At one time we were dead. We were dead in trespasses. We were dead in sins, and we were awaiting judgment. But God has, through the blood of Christ, washed our sins and reconciled us to himself. He is the perfect sacrifice, and he is perfectly capable of forgiving us of our sins. And that's what he does. He forgives us of our sins. People today will ask the question concerning God. They'll say, well, you speak of God, but what is God like? What is he like? Well, the fact that God forgives reveals to us that God is loving and that God is merciful. The psalmist in Psalm 86 verse 5 said it like this, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. You see, Jesus' entire ministry dealt with this one basic human need, and that is to be forgiven. Because without his forgiveness, man is eternally separated from him. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Jesus in John 5, 24 said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned because he has crossed over from death into life. One of the big mistakes that people make today is to think that forgiveness is automatic, and it's not. Forgiveness is the result of repenting, of confessing, of humbly asking God, humbly asking God for it. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, John said, If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. 
So Jesus came to seek, and he came to save that which was lost. And that would include a man by the name of Matthew. He came in order to save this man. In verse 9, it says, Jesus was passing, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. In Rome, he would have been called a publicani. A publicani was a man who served occupying Rome against his own people. And Matthew, as a tax collector, collected various taxes, toll taxes, import duties, boat docking fees, licenses. Because of this kind of job, tax collectors were despised by the average Jewish citizen. And the reason they were despised is Jews bought franchises that entitled them to levy taxes on citizens and travelers. And many were extortioners. They were bribed easily. They became very wealthy, but they also became very hated. And they would assess taxes by whim. He had a certain amount he was obliged to collect and give to Rome, but anything above the minimum he could keep. So he was hated even the more. They were called at that time licensed robbers. They were called beasts in human form. According to the rabbis, there was no hope for a man like Matthew. So he was excluded from all religious fellowship. He was considered unclean and unfit. His money was tainted. It was defiled, and it defiled any who accepted it. Well, Jesus is about to reveal something to us. He's about to reveal that it's not too late for him and that there's hope for this man. He has the authority to forgive sins. And God is willing to do so if we come and we ask. But we need to recognize, first and foremost, that we are sinners. John Wesley once said it like this. He said, I am fallen short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. And consequently, my whole life, being an evil tree, cannot bring good fruit. The Bible declares that God is perfect. There's no darkness within him. The Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, says your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So how can an ungodly person come to know a perfect God? By God reaching to him. Matthew's gospel is filled with stories of God calling people to receive forgiveness, and he uses himself as an example of one who is touched by God. As we look at verse 9, notice it's Jesus who sees him, and it's Jesus who approaches him. That's because Jesus came to seek and to save. He came to seek people to follow him and to serve him. And he gives them a profound command. It's simple but profound. Notice in how he says, follow me. And so Matthew arises from the table and begins to follow Jesus Christ. Now, he's financially well off, but he knew that the money couldn't satisfy him because material possessions cannot meet the deepest needs that you have. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And so Matthew left everything he had to receive something greater. And so this is what happens to Matthew. He follows him. Now it says in verse 10, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Behold, 
many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard that. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is interesting as I look at it, and I want to point a few things out. Notice that it speaks concerning that Jesus is there at the table of Matthew. So we see that Matthew made his faith public by giving Jesus a banquet in his own home. He was not an undercover disciple, but was openly identified with Jesus Christ. He admitted that he was a follower. He wasn't ashamed of Jesus. He revealed his trust in him, and he also was inviting people to come to hear Christ. But I got saved. I was taught, read the Bible. And so I began to read the Bible. As I was reading the New Testament, I went from Matthew, and I went up to Revelation. I was in the book of Revelation, and I was reading chapter 9. And as I read chapter 9 in Matthew, I started reading about men with women's hair who had iron teeth. And I read of scorpion stings and people wanting to die but unable to do so. And as I was reading it, it started piercing me. So I got up and I went from the den where I was to the kitchen where my parents were. And my mom and dad were seated at the kitchen table there. And I walked in with the Bible. I held the Bible in my hand, and I said, Mother and Dad, I said, listen, this is the Word of God. I had seen somebody on TV do it. I thought it was rather cool. So this is the Word of God, and hear what God says to you. And so I read Revelation 9, and as I read that chapter to them, I, I remember saying to my dad and my mom this. I said, I don't know what this means. I said, but I do know this. It's not talking to me. It's talking to you. And I looked at my dad, and I said to my dad, Dad, you're a good man. You are the best man that I will ever know, but you will be the best man in hell if you don't give your heart to Jesus Christ. I said, I love you, Dad, and I don't want to go to heaven without you. Bow your head you're going to receive Jesus Christ right now. And my, my dad and my mom both bowed their heads and gave their hearts to Jesus Christ because I believed. I believed that there's one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ. And I didn't care if my dad got angry at me. My dad later on said, you know, Dave, he said, when you said I was going to go to hell, I wanted to get up and hit you. He says, but when you said you loved me and didn't want to go to heaven without me, he said, that touched my heart. Because like I told you, I was into alcohol and I was into drugs. And I, I had hardly been sober for the last year. I had been doing so many drugs. I had lost a lot of weight. I was living a, a terrible life. And my dad had seen that. And then he saw a change in me. He saw the change that, that was almost instantaneous. When, when I came home and I, and I had gotten saved, I, I walked into the den and I said, Mom, I said, Dad, uh, Madeline, Becky, I said, I love you. Praise the Lord. And, and, and 
my, I got, I walked out and I went into the bathroom, which was right next to the den. And my two sisters jumped up and followed me. And, and, and they said, what happened to you? And I said, I gave my heart to Christ tonight. I became born again. And my mom, I still remember my dad walking with my mom and he had his arm over her, her, her shoulder and he was kind of bringing her past the door. And my mom stopped and was shaking her head. And she went to her bedroom and did a rosary for me because she knew that I had gone crazy. And that's what was going on. And so my sister Madeline, when, when I shared Jesus Christ has changed my life, she went to her bed that night and she said, God, whatever you did for my brother, do that for me. And she gave her heart to Christ. She was the first convert under my ministry. And that happened December 27, 1970. My sister Rebecca heard the gospel and she heard that message. And I went into the army for two years and I was gone. While I was gone, she began to go to some place, some church, but the church had a, uh, a lesbian youth leader who seduced my sister Becky into a lesbian lifestyle at the age of 18. And my sister Becky lived as an openly lesbian woman for many years. And in 1998, I was teaching a, uh, an Easter service. My sister lives in New Mexico and I didn't know she was there. I gave an Easter message and I still remember, I give many invitations when I'm giving invitations like that. And I remember the last three people who came walking up. As I opened my eyes, it was my mom, my dad, and my sister Becky. And my sister Becky gave her heart to Jesus Christ and began following the Lord. And she spoke to me years later. And she said, Dave, she says, one of the things that, that, that broke my heart was I knew that dad would never me, walk me up an aisle so that I could get married. I knew daddy would never do that. And she had remained unmarried, she says, and I, I knew daddy would never do that. And she said, and yet I saw a picture somebody had taken when I got saved. And there I was with my arm in my dad's arm, walking forward to give my heart to the greatest husband I could ever receive, Jesus Christ. And her life has been changed now for many, many years, back since 1998. God saves us. God forgives us. God, God has sent, sent his son so he might deliver us. And that's what it's all about. And Matthew didn't keep it to himself. He invited his friends to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He invited his friends to hear what this man could do in somebody's life. And the only friends he had were other sinners. So he brings them. And as he brings them, there are others who are there, religious people who are watching what is taking place. They're called Pharisees. And as they're watching this take place and these tax collectors and sinners come and sit down with him and his disciples, while the Pharisees, according to verse 11, saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so instead of attacking Jesus, they want to question the disciples about Jesus. It's a tactic that has continued to be used to this day. Instead of going after the person speaking, speak to those who have been influenced by him and undermine what he does. Undermine the pupils' trust in their teacher. And if you can do that, you can destroy their ministry. But Jesus heard it according to verse 12, and he asked them a question. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And goes on to say, I, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He pointed out that only the sick will visit a physician. Only the sick ever seek help. Well, people don't need to visit a doctor. Well, the Bible says that we're all sick with sin. Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can say I've made my heart clean? I'm pure from my sin. 
So he's saying, unless you understand your own condition, I cannot help you. This understanding of self comes through the work of the Spirit as he convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit convinces a person that you're lost. When I was there at the Hollywood Palladium, and I was witnessing all of these people, and I saw something I didn't possess, I began to, to puzzle. I began to wonder. And it, the voice of the Lord spoke to my heart, and I still remember the conversation. He had said to me, he said, you're uncomfortable. And I was speaking. It felt so natural. So I spoke, and I said, yes, I am. And then the question came, why? I said, because I'm not like these people. And then the voice once again said, why are you different? And I said to that voice, I'm not a Christian. And that was the first time in my life that I admitted, even within myself, that I was not a Christian. I saw the difference between me and these people. It was such an obvious difference. And it took the Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to awaken me to the reality of my sinfulness because I was fully convinced that I was a believer. I just wasn't practicing my religious faith. Well, Jesus challenged these people. He challenged them concerning their own condition. And he said to them, basically, if you can't understand that you're, you're sick, you'll never go to a doctor. And he challenged them in such a way that he actually spoke, of them, spoke to them concerning their understanding of Scripture because he said to him, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Go and learn this. That's a rabbinic saying. It means you don't know what you should know. He's saying you're ignorant of God's mercy and you are ignorant of God's compassion. Hosea 6, verse 6 simply says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, a person who is cold towards others has yet to understand their own sinful nature, and they are yet to understand the depth of the grace and kindness of God. I was speaking to a guy. His name is Frank. And Frank had shared his testimony. And the testimony was like this. When Frank was 12 years old, his mother died. A few months after his mother had died, it was Thanksgiving. And he was getting ready to go to eat dinner at a family member's house. And as he was in his room getting ready to go to a Thanksgiving dinner at the age of 12, his father stopped at the door of his room and looked in and said, what are you doing? And Frank said, I'm getting ready to go to auntie's house for Thanksgiving. And his father said to Frank, who invited you? You're not going with us. And he gave him a couple of dollars, said, go to McDonald's, get yourself a burger. And he took the rest of the family and left Frank by himself there when the rest of the family went to family members for Thanksgiving. It broke his heart. So Frank began to rebel. Eventually, he ran away. He began to live on the streets. He was living in an alley. And 
he would go into a bakery Monday through Friday, and it would sweep the bakery floor at 6 in the morning so that the owner of the bakery would give him a glass of milk and a donut. He ended up running with a, a gang called the Harpies in, in East L.A. And that became his family. Eventually, he married a girl. They had a baby, a little girl. He took a job, lived in California, moved out of state. He took a job, and he, his wife, and his little girl were now living while well, he had to go out and work, and his job was he had to travel out of state, and he left his wife alone. As they're living there, the wife gets pregnant, so now she's pregnant with the second child. She has his little girl, and he's out of state when he gets a phone call, and the phone call, the brother on the phone or the guy on the phone says to him, Frank, you need to come home because your wife's going out on you. So Frank comes home a day early, and he comes to his house, can't find his wife, so he drives into town, and as he drives into town, he sees his wife's car by this restaurant that they go together to, and there's a motorcycle gangbanger who's there talking to his wife. And Frank knows that that's the guy that his wife has been with and figures out that she's not pregnant with his child, she's pregnant with that biker's child. And he gets upset, and he walks up to confront the motorcycle guy. But when he walks up to the guy, the guy sees him coming, pulls out a gun, takes it out and fires, and shoots Frank's daughter. And she hits the ground. And then he shoots the woman, his wife. He jumps on his motorcycle and drives away as Frank holds his little girl in his arms. She was six, and she dies in her father's arms. He takes his pregnant wife to the hospital, but he finds out where this guy is from, where he's hiding. They have a safe house. And he drives to the safe house, and he finds the guy, and he kills him. Shot and killed him. And then he went back to where he lived. They find out what Frank had done. He has to appear in court. But he refuses to come on the day that they told him to. He was five days late. When he comes into court, the judge says, after hearing his story, he said, had you come in on time, I would have given you leniency. But because you didn't come in on time, it, it gives the appearance that you were evading, and I have to give you a more steeper punishment, put him in prison for 16 years. He got out of prison. He had already divorced his wife. She had committed adultery. He couldn't be with her anymore. And he began to just run the streets again. In prison, he had heard the gospel. He didn't fully commit himself to Jesus or anything. He'd heard it before. But now, he's empty. And he runs this way for many years, going from one relationship to another, till finally one day, he said to the Lord, God, forgive me. Help me. I'm going to change my life. I, I can't live this way anymore. God, forgive me. 
And so he's got a job. He does home refurbishing and all, and so he's knocking on doors, drumming up some business. And he knocks on the door of this woman, and he says, I'm doing work around the neighborhood. Do you have any work you need done? And she says, well, as a matter of fact, I do. She brings him into the house, and she says, I need this to be done. Can you fix this for me? And he says, of course. He sits down, starts quoting prizes to her, and he says to her, what do you do for fun around here? She says, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I go to church. He says, you're a believer? And she says, yes. He says, so am I. I just got right with the Lord. I just, I need a church. Where do you go to church? She tells him what church she goes to. And so Frank says, great. When do you have services? She says, Wednesday night. He says, great. Well, this woman goes to the church there, and there's this guy, Frank. And he walks up to her, and he says to her, he says, you know, I like your church. She says, great. He comes on Sunday. Once again, he sees her, hi, you know, I like your church. She says, that's great. Before you know it, they go out for some coffee. They begin to share their stories. They fall in love. And then he asks her to marry him. And they asked me to perform the wedding. So I was able last year, they just had their first year anniversary just this last Wednesday. I was able to perform the wedding ceremony for my sister who had lived as a lesbian for 24 years and a man who had murdered another, another man. They're both right with God. They came into his kingdom. They joined in marriage. God forgives sin, any sin, no matter what it is, any length of sin, no matter how long it's been performed, any kind of sin. What is the worst sin? What is worse than killing the Son of God? But God forgives sin. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's still doing it to this day.